According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 9, our second week now in Proverbs chapter 9. We're looking at a house that wisdom is constructing or has constructed. It's spoken of in the completed sense. Hebrew doesn't really have a past, present, future like we think of it in the English language or in our mindset. The Hebrew uh, tenses are in the sense of completed or uh, incomplete in the in the process. And uh, But this is spoken of in the completion of it. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. And that's all completed. What she's presently doing is calling. She presently calls from the tops of the heights of the city. And so there is a call that goes forth. And the call is based upon everything else being done. <laughs> All right. Similar to what you and I do in our evangelism. We, uh, there is a call, and that call is based on everything being done. What is left to do? There is nothing left to do. It is finished, as Jesus declared in victory. And so we can issue a call. We can, we can utter an invitation. And the invitation is made available on, not on the basis of what the person can do to finish something, but on the basis of what has already been completed, what is done, what is prepared, what is, is provided. And so we can rejoice. Um, whoever is naive... Let him turn in here, in verse 4. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. And so this invitation becomes a, a, a delight for us to stop and consider in terms of what the unbeliever is invited to do and what the believer is invited to do. And uh, I enjoy the fact that both the uh, eating and drinking are uh, features of that. It's not... Uh, dieting in in this verse. So, <laughs> all right. Now I got to get back in fellowship again. So let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's ask the Father to bless our time together to sanctify the teaching of His truth today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your truth, thankful for the blessings we have of your word, the uh, living word in the person of your Son, Father, who has accomplished all things according to your design for your good pleasure and for his sake, for our benefit. And Father, I thank you for the written word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together to receive instruction. I pray, Father, we might be obedient to the commands, that we would study to show ourselves approved, that we would be diligent in this study. And uh, we are diligent not only as students, but as workmen, needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so equip us, Father, to understand it and to live it in all things to the glory of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, as we're looking at this chapter, we realize that it is a conclusion. It is a conclusion to the parental wisdom portion of the book. I'm taking chapters 1 through 9 as a unit. Uh, many people do. Uh, because chapter 10 is a reboot, is a restart. 
uh, in Proverbs 10.1, you'll notice it says the Proverbs of Solomon, and we have a whole different heading that comes in chapter 10 that uh, serves to introduce uh, chapters 10 through 24. We'll have an additional heading that's then given in chapter 25 when we have the collection of Proverbs that were gathered during the days of King Hezekiah, and at that point they were compiled and added to the canon. So Proverbs was was canonized in stages. Many of the books of the Old Testament were canonized in stages as they came into their canonical form. And we don't have a problem with that. That's actually acceptable uh, and standard even in uh, evangelical understanding. And so there's a new heading in chapter 10 where we'll introduce the Solomonic portion. Uh, so for now, chapter 9 is the recap and conclusion. It uh, serves to recap everything that we've covered in the first eight chapters and uh, ties it together beautifully, I think, with uh, this metaphor, with this extended metaphor that is to be found here in terms of the house that wisdom has built. Wisdom and folly are contrasted, and uh, ver- particularly verse 1, verse 6, and verse 13, where we see those contrasts there between wisdom and folly. Also, the scoffing scoffer, and we'll spend some time on him, the scoffing scoffer that we see in verse 7, verse 8, and verse 12. And we've had the vocabulary already, although very briefly, uh, the, the aspect of scoffing goes back all the way to chapter 1, but didn't really have a, uh, a an extensive treatment, uh, not until we get here, and uh, there will be more. Uh, that comes to scoffing in uh, chapters 10 through 24. I think a, a, um, a point of emphasis that Solomon makes in his uh, Proverbs deals with the scoffer. And so we'll talk about that as well. We don't want to uh, sit in the seat of scoffers. We don't want to be uh, even, we don't want to accomplish the scoffing activity ourselves, but we don't want to identify with the scoffing activity in the aspects there. So we'll tackle that when we get to that paragraph. Wisdom's seven-pillared house is what starts the the chapter, serves as an illustration as we study the seven pillars that wisdom has built. Wisdom's seven-pillared house illustrates the delight Jesus Christ has. He delights in the sons of men, and he delights in preparing dwelling places for them. And uh, we understand this as we see the the follow-up to chapter 8, the delight that Jesus has in the sons of men, and now we see the delight that Jesus has in providing uh, a dwelling place. And we have this here. I find a lot of parallel between Proverbs 9 and John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. And the fact that um, we are designed to be somewhere. All right, you ever think about that? The nature of God. You think about God and who he is and what he is in pure actuality and in omnipresence. Uh, But consider God who designed us to be locative. We are monopresent. We uh, We are where we are. And wherever we are means there's a billion other places where we're not, <laughs> right? And so we are where we are. And if we're going to go from where we are to somewhere else, then we have to go from where we are to somewhere else. It's called movement, right? Or travel or what have you. And so uh, we're not in the, in the um, position where God is in the, in the sense of omnipresence, in the sense of his pure actuality. We are locative, Say angels are locative. He created. He created uh, when when he created something beyond himself. He created finite things that are where they are, and even the concept of where, you know, the concept of when. These are these these relative terms um, are foreign to God's existence. 
God is absolutely eternal. God doesn't have a when until he creates time. And then now we have a past, present, and future. Now we have a dimension of time. Now we have uh, terms such as before and after and since and from and until and things like that. None of those expressions had any basis of reality until God created the dimensions of time. So they, the components of, of where and when, okay? And it's, it's fun to think about. It's a blessing to think about, particularly because we have God's word that explains these things. Otherwise, I think without God's word, what we'd end up being, what? We'd end up being, you know, Einstein, and we'd start studying space-time, and we'd start, uh, we would, you know, surrender our existence to the standard model of, of existence or whatever else, you know. No, we've got the word of God, and we accept it for what it says, and we take it from there. And, uh, and I find it interesting. The more and more that science starts to finally catch up to what the Bible said thousands of years ago. <laughs> and every time that happens, I just smile and say, isn't God great? I love that. You know, I love that a lot. Anyway, so we look through these first six verses and we see the preparation. Again, she has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Okay. Now this is Jesus, of course. We, we get that. It's spoken of in the feminine because uh, chachma is a feminine noun. And so... Um, we're fine with that. We don't have any issues there. Uh, there's a bunch of cults, of course, that want to turn this into Gaia, the mother goddess, and, and, and some queen of heaven worship and whatever else. But it's not Gaia in this chapter. It's, it's Chachma in this chapter. It's wisdom, lady wisdom. And uh, we take this to be uh, the second member of Trinity, the revealed member of the Godhead, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. All right. And so everything that that has been done there to prepare. Now notice, when we get to John 14, there, there remains a completed residence, a completed house, but it remains uh, unsuitable for the body of Christ. And so, again, we consider that the, the house that wisdom has hewn is complete. It's complete at the point that Proverbs is being written. It's complete from the standpoint of the, of the stewardship of Israel. It is a completed dwelling. We are designed to be eternal beings, and God has designed our eternal dwelling. That is, believing Jews and believing Gentiles have a place prepared. And that is the house, the seven-pillared house, that, uh, that wisdom here has built. In John 14, though, he says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many manai, apartments, condos, dwelling places. Okay? I, I, I dislike the King James mansions because a mansion speaks of uh, an independent residence, uh, as it were, an independent structure, an independent uh, building. All right? And uh, this passage d- disallows that. There is a house... There is a structure, if you will, that has many rooms, that has many apartments. You might think of them as, as suites, okay, um, or condos. I've been using condos for a while now in my thinking. And, uh, and uh, they are all presently within the overall house uh, that wisdom has built, all right? So I would connect this. I would connect the seven-pillared house uh, of uh, of wisdom from Proverbs nine with my father's house in uh, in John fourteen, all right. And these are suitable. These apartments are suitable for Old Testament believers. 
They're suitable for every believer that ever walked this earth from Adam uh, to uh, John the Baptist, all right? The greatest of, of those born among women in, as, in terms of an Old Testament saint, all right? But none of those rooms are suitable for the bride of Christ. None of those rooms are suitable for the church, for the body of Christ in the church age. Nor do I believe uh, would they be suitable for the fullness of time, the saints in the new heavens and new earth, a thousand generations following the millennium. But that's, that's a different issue. All right. So if it were not so, I would have told you. I would have told you. And so when you stop to consider what is necessary, what is revealed, what is a part of the Hebrew canon, what is yet to be revealed in the Greek canon, and what is it that was revealed to uh, the disciples in the upper room? In this upper room discourse, and from chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, the disciples are receiving things that, that were not recorded in the Old Testament, the uh, previews of, of, of mystery doctrine that's being provided for the body of Christ. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. All right? And he's not going to prepare a mene. I don't think it's mene there. I think it's tapas, isn't it? When he switches in, uh, in verse 2. It's off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure. Um, none of the manai that are in the Father's house are suitable for the bride of Christ. Jesus is going to prepare a place. And if I go, and I do, to prepare a place for you, I will come again. This is a part of why it's to our advantage that he goes away. They had a sadness that he was going away. They had been walking with him for three and a half years, and now he's going away. And he's, he's, been, he's going to go away for 2,000 years plus. <laughs> All right? He's going away. But that's to our advantage, to their advantage, to our advantage. Because he is presently seated at the Father's right hand. He is presently preparing our heavenly place. So if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. All right? I will not come again and locate where you are. I will come again and receive you to myself. That's why there has to be a rapture that precedes the second advent. Because when he comes back at second advent, he comes back and he lands on the earth and he sits in Jerusalem and he rules uh, this earth for uh, the thousand year millennial reign of Christ and then the new heavens and new earth after that. But that's, this passage doesn't speak about the second advent. This passage speaks about, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know where I am going, or you know the way where I am going. And so the setting for this uh, place is heaven. The setting is heaven where he's going to prepare. He's not been in Jerusalem the last 2,000 years preparing our place. The place for the bride of Christ. The place for the royal family of God. For the church. Alright. So understand, this place that wisdom has built. What we're studying in Proverbs 9 is a glorious residence. It's a glorious place. And it is suitable for Old Testament saints. It's suitable for Jews and Gentiles that are saved by grace through faith looking forward to a coming Redeemer. But it is not suitable for the royal family of God. It is not suitable for the redeemed of our stewardship that are looking back to the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We have a, uh, a, uh, a different inheritance than what uh, the Jews or the Gentiles had in the Old Testament. We want to be clear on that. All right, so we have the connection there. Now, what are these seven pillars? This has led to a ton of debate and speculation. Um, on my way back to 
uh, Proverbs. I'm going to stop uh, in Daniel. How about that? Let's stop in Daniel chapter 2. I want you just to see something. I do this with my teenagers in the teen class. I do this with the Bible college students in Ukraine. I do this with a lot of folks. Uh, So don't feel like I'm treating you like children. Um, I do this with pastors, all right, because I can, all right, because I, uh, because I find it useful. And I, I tell people, put your finger on this, all right? So in Daniel chapter 2, we have a statue. We have a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. The dream that he has is a dream of a statue. And the statue is pretty spectacular, all right? And he doesn't tell his wise men what the dream is. He demands that, that these uh, demoniacs tell him what the dream is, right? He's got some soothsayers, and he's got some fortune tellers, and he's got some wizards, and he's got some, I call them the spiritual advisory board. He's got a whole staff of, of um, sorcerers, all right? And Chaldeans and wise men and, and whatnot. And uh, they, they can't tell him the dream, but Daniel does. Daniel tells him the dream because God reveals to Daniel what the dream is. And so Daniel describes the dream. And in Daniel chapter 2, we have the description here in verses 31 and following. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, that statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. Now right there, that ought to scare Nebuchadnezzar like anything because Daniel knows that he dreamed about a statue. Well, maybe a statue is a lucky guess. All right. The head of that statue is made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. All right. At this point, we're done with a lucky guess. <laughs> what human being could possibly know this? What human being, you know, I mean, it's maybe you could guess that a king who built hanging gardens and who built big cities and who built monuments and stuff, you might guess that a, that a rich, uh, fancy king that's full of himself might build a huge statue. You know, it's not out of the realm of possibility he could dream about a statue. But now that we've stipul- uh, stipulated the head of gold, the chest of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, the feet of partly iron, partly clay, um, we're, we're beyond the realm of lucky guesses at this point. That Daniel knows, he has seen the vision, he has seen the same thing that, ne- that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. And it goes on. Because you kept looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on his feet of iron and clay, and it crushed them. Now we're way past lucky guess. Now we know he saw, not only did he see the statue, but he saw the, not just a still shot uh, JPEG image, but he saw a a video, (laughs) all right? He saw the YouTube on this. He actually saw video as the stone hits the statue's feet. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. All right? And that's the end of the dream. And that's the end of the recitation of the dream. Now, why did I bring you here? This has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with Daniel chapter or with uh, Proverbs chapter nine. So why did I bring you here? Here's why: because we have we just read in thirty one through thirty six we just read the description. Now we have to read the explanation. Okay, and so in verse thirty six, this was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. 
All right. So we have the description. Now we need to get the explanation, the interpretation. And Daniel provides that as well. You are the head of gold. Okay? And we have the explanation that's then given. So it's not left up to us to try to invent something clever, to try to um, create an explanation for gold, silver, bronze, iron, or to try to create an explanation for the, the iron-clay tandem. Okay? It's simply our blessing to examine the context, to see the parallel passages, to see not only the explanation here in chapter 2, but then the follow-up message of four beasts in chapter 7. So uh, in verse 38, you are the head of gold. And then in verse 39, after you will arise another kingdom inferior to you than a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. And so we see that we have a succession of kingdoms here from Babylon to Persia to Greece. And then there will be a fourth kingdom. Here's Rome, as strong as iron. And so the explanation is then given. And so you and I can't just make something up and impress people with how clever we are to unlock the mysteries of the statue. It's right there in the text. All right, now, let's go to, back to Proverbs chapter 9, and we have seven pillars of wisdom. <laughs> we have the description, but do we have the explanation? Do we have the interpretation? Do we have verses here that tell us? Wisdom has built her house, she has hewn out her seven pillars, and her seven pillars are. Okay? No. Nothing in this passage tells us what those seven pillars are. The point I'm trying to make here is that we don't have a biblical basis to stand firm on to say the seven pillars of God's wisdom are. Because we don't have the verses in this text or anywhere in the scripture that does what Daniel uh, 2 does in telling us what the head of gold is, the chest of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, the feet, the... None of that. All right? And so because we don't have any of that, we're left to guess. We're left with speculations. All right, we're left with speculations. And so there's commentaries you can read and there's pastors that'll teach and there's all kinds of things. They'll say, well, uh, back in Proverbs 8, we had seven descriptions. Uh, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I dwell with knowledge and discretion, with the fear of the Lord. And, and so they look to a description of wisdom from chapter 8 and by combining a few of them and, and wording it in a certain way, they came up with a sevenfold description. In chapter 8, they came up with prudence and say, pillar number one is prudence. Pillar number two is knowledge and discretion. Pillar number three is the fear of the Lord. And we'll just ignore some of those other things that are in that verse. Uh, pillar number four is counsel. Pillar number five is sound judgment. Pillar number six is understanding, even though that kind of should go with sound judgment. And uh, pillar number seven is power. And we're going to read chapter eight that way and number them in a certain way and combine and divide in a certain way so that we can end up with seven in that description of wisdom in chapter eight so that we can then assign it to chapter nine and say, those are the seven pillars in wisdom's house. All right, well, all right, glad you did that. But chapter 9 doesn't do that. Chapter 9 doesn't say she has hewn out her seven pillars, and by the way, those pillars are 
the description that we previously talked about in chapter 8. Chapter 9 doesn't do that. So other folks will come along and find the seven spirits of God from Isaiah. And uh, they'll, they'll try to use Isaiah 11.2 to define these pillars here, like they try to use Isaiah 11.2 to, to define the seven spirits before God's throne in, uh, in Revelation, which doesn't jazz me either. Um, in, uh, sometimes they go to James 3 and they find a sevenfold description of wisdom there in James 3. Uh, pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, combined, merciful, and fruitful, unwavering, genuine, and then you can get kind of seven out of that. See? But there's nothing in Proverbs 9 that makes use of James 3. <laughs> it's about a thousand years too early anyway to try to use James 3 to define Proverbs chapter 9. And so my conclusion, and, in, and until I get convicted of Scripture otherwise, is that 7 is a complete number. It is a large number. It is a significant number. It demonstrates um, an, a, spa- a spacious palatial residence. It speaks of something grand and something large, particularly when you realize the author of this book is the one who built the largest temple Jerusalem ever had up to that point, and it only had two pillars out front, right? It had the Yakin and Boaz. It had those two pillars out front. And so the author of Proverbs, by the way, and I find this remarkable, the grandest structure he ever built had two two columns, had two pillars out front. And wisdom b- builds this thing with seven. Seven pillars, if you can imagine. The, uh, the, the, the expansiveness, the spacious palatial residence that, uh, that we might see here. Anyway, I uh, failed to put a picture in here last week, so I thought I'd show it to you. Um, in, I don't know why. We'll see. It might be interesting. I don't show enough pictures. People like pictures and say, Pastor, you need to show more pictures. There's a picture. And it's a picture that has nothing to do with Wisdom's house. But it does have pillars. It has support posts, okay, and uh, called pillars. And the support posts on the ground floor are made of stone and made of wood on the second floor. And it's kind of a, a pattern for how many of the, the residences were um, featured. This one actually was quite wealthy in the sense that you had stable space for a donkey or for cows or horses or whatever. Also a pen for your pigs uh, or your sheep. Not pigs, pigs are unclean. A good Jewish house wouldn't have pigs in it. Uh, but you would have sheep, you would have goats, you would have lambs. And if you brought them in at night, you would need a pen for them. And uh, the chicken's running loose in the middle there. Anyway, um, ladders instead of staircases uh, through the uh, holes and then the, the residence upstairs for the people. And then uh, the roof for storage. Things that would be stacked on the roof. Things of that nature. Anyway, um, Wisdom builds her house. She has hewn out her pillars. The pillars are either internal pillars that support the structure, load-bearing pillars, or they are uh, like uh, the two pillars in front of Solomon's temple that they uphold the portico, they uphold the porch in front, and they demonstrate the, the grandeur from 
the aspect of entering in. I prefer that actually because uh, we have here in Proverbs 9 the call to enter. And, and what's stressed is the entrance, that they people have to turn in order to enter. And once they enter in, then they have the, the benefits. They're not dazzled by the pillars anymore. Then they have the benefits of the food and the wine and the fellowship and the doctrine and the blessings of being inside. So I, I tend to take these pillars as being the front pillars, the, the entrance markers, the uh, aspects of, the, of identification that, that differentiate that palace from anything else that a person might observe from the street. All right. Anyway, I failed to show you that picture last week and felt bad. Let's talk about pillars. And that's where we ran out of time a week ago. I want to get right back to it. Um, We have a lot of usage for pillars throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament alike. The pillars are uh, functional or decorative or both. Uh, The pillars are a blessing or a cursing. The pillars do signify something every time that a pillar is spoken of. There is a significance to it. A pillar is, um, is not an accident. <laughs> okay? A pillar is, um, is, uh, is, is intentional as far as where it is placed and why. And if it is carved, if it is ornate, if it is decorative, then there's a reason for it. If it's memorial, then it's going to have something written on there, like a, a peace treaty between Laban and Jacob, for example, saying this is the boundary. You stay on your side, I stay on my side. Um, or this is where the battle was fought, and this is where we will commemorate the faithfulness of Yahweh for delivering us or something of that nature. Um, we have a lot of things to say about pillars. Pillars are never accidental. It's like getting dressed. No one gets dressed on accident. All right. No one. A pillar just doesn't show up. A pillar has to be, you know, I mean, you can walk through a forest and you can see a tree and, 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 and realize, okay, nobody put that there. God put that there. It's where the tree grew. That's nature. All right. But if you're walking through a forest and you come across a totem pole, you come across, and we had a lot of those in the Pacific Northwest, the, the Indians out there, they, they, were, they weren't exactly, we had some lame Indians in the, in, in the Pacific Northwest. I got to, we didn't have Apaches or Comanches or great warriors on horseback. And we, I mean, we had some fishermen and some hunter-gatherer types. Um, but one thing you, you can't take away from them, as, as lame and pathetic as the Northwest Indians were, they, they could carve some amazing totem poles. All right? They had some amazing idols that they built to their Thunderbird deities and whatnot. Right? Uh, and so, so if you're walking through the woods and you come across this painted, carved, chiseled, decorative totem pole. That didn't just happen. That's not an accident. All right? And you got all the different sections going up to the top. There's a reason why I think the demons mock God in their totem poles, in their idols, in their uh, Asherim, Ashtarah poles. All right. We got through the first few of these. How far did we get? We got... We left off with number three, and I didn't even read the scriptures to number two. Uh, but obviously, heaven has pillars, as does the earth. Uh, in such expressions, we understand that pillars are being used metaphorically, that uh, these aren't literal pillars. Heaven is transdimensional. Heaven is, uh, is not sitting on literal pillars. 
The earth is not sitting on a, on a literal pillar or pillars, plural. All right, we understand that these are being used metaphorically to speak of a, a foundation or a basis or a strength or the, the stability upon which something rests. And so we can use the, 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 the term pillar as a metaphor. That's significant. All right, we want to identify that when the pillar is used me- metaphorically, it speaks of stability and foundation, right? And uh, in the aspects there. The Old Testament has pillars of salt, a pillar of cloud, and a pillar of fire. Of course, that's Lot's wife in Genesis 19.26 when they're escaping out of, Sol- out of Sodom. And God says, don't look back. And they look back, or at least Mrs. Lot looked back. Okay? And uh, I don't know what her name was, Mrs. Lot. Anyway, she looked back and instantly became the pillar of salt. Now, was that a metaphor? No, that was a literal pillar of salt. Literal Lot's wife became a literal pillar of literal salt. All right, that was not metaphoric. As as uh, I don't think anyone would would dispute. Maybe somebody probably would dispute i don't know but uh she's stuck there remember lot's wife right and so lot and his daughters moved on and she stayed there because she was a literal pillar of literal salt all right and then there's the cloud and the fire and the guidance here we didn't turn there we can take this morning a little bit if he, uh, exodus 13 and look at this is this literal or is this metaphor well literal jews are literally walking in a literal desert all right, Exodus 13. And so, uh, it's interesting, uh, verse 17, when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. There was a shorter way to get there, but it was through some rough territory, and it was past uh, a militant warlike people with iron chariots and, and weaponry. So he doesn't take them to the Philistines. Uh, he realizes that uh, the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. That uh, if they came face to face with that, what their response would be. God knows every what if. He knows uh, the tests we're going to fail, and so he doesn't put us in those testings. The tests were, uh, that uh, he puts us in, uh, it's in his wisdom that he takes us where he wants us. Hence, God led the people around by way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. And so it's really a roundabout route through the uh, Sinai Peninsula, and uh, I believe to the eastern branch of the Red Sea, that is the Gulf of Aqaba. My concept, anyway, could be wrong. And uh, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. We talked about bones and why burial locations are significant. For he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Where did, why does he care where his bones are? You know, in the resurrection, does it, does it impact how he gets raised? Well, we discussed that, didn't we, in uh, recent classes in terms of that. All right. Then they set out from Sukkoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord was going before them. So the point is, all of this is literal. The bones, the camping, the walking, the, the fear, the, the shorter road, the longer road, all of this is literal. There's no metaphor in any of this. And so Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day. Is that a metaphor? No, this is literal, a literal cloud. They could see it, they could follow it. 
And they were commanded to, and they did. And in a pillar of fire by night. You know, it's, if it's dark, how do you see the cloud? Well, if the cloud's on fire, you can see it. All right? And uh, there it is. So uh, the cloud is, a, is in a pillar. In a, uh, that's, that shows you the, the, the shape of it. And uh, likewise, the fire is in a pillar, which I've had a blessing, not a, well, a blessing, yeah, an experience with pillars of fire when, uh, in uh, 1991 when the Iraqis set fire to the oil wells in Kuwait. And uh, they fled from uh, uh, Kuwait, and before they left, uh, they set all the oil wells on fire. So when we arrived in uh, crossing from Saudi Arabia up into Kuwait, uh, all those oil wells were just these pillars of fire everywhere. And uh, one by one by one, they got they got put out. Eventually, it took several days. And uh, the pillar of fire, uh, each each pillar of fire got put out. And then for days afterwards, we had this cloud, this dark cloud, over uh, over us. All right. Anyway, there's literal pillars there, and a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and night. And so it illuminated their journey when he called upon a, a night journey and uh, aspects there. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. It was always with them until such time as he brings them into the land and then it stopped. All right? And uh, if sometimes the pillar didn't move. Sometimes the pillar just stayed resting on the ground and that was their signal to, to make camp and, and stay in camp. Uh, but when it was lifted up from the ground, then they realized the pillar, uh, you know, the pillar has gotten up and it's preparing to move. And so uh, that Hebrew idiom, that great Hebrew idiom about, you know, uh, Abraham arose and departed. It's uh, kind of a, an idiomatic feature because uh, no one ever departs without first standing up. But but in Hebrew, you know, it's it's common to say he arose and departed. And that's what the cloud did. That's what the, that's what the pillar of fire did is that it would arise, I don't know how high, and then uh, remain, evidently, that pillar would arise, and I don't know, did it stay perpendicular to the ground? Did it stay, you know, or did it point a direction, you know? I want to see, I want to see how the video works on this. But anyway, uh, it would arise, and it would move, and they would follow it. And uh, those are literal pillars, okay? We also have memorial pillars, idolatrous pillars, which is also memorial, and uh, boastful pillars, which are also memorial. All right. Pillars are memorial, idolatrous, and or boastful. Sometimes you get combination of purposes in these things. Genesis 28, verses 18 and 22. I'll take the time to see these because I think they're useful. And I think, um, and because wisdom has hewn out her seven pillars, there's a reason why that's in our text. What is the purpose for these pillars? Well, what is the purpose for any pillar in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Perhaps there is something memorial about the pillars that wisdom has carved out, and perhaps we will learn, if not now, when we get there. All right, Genesis 28. This is in the Life of Jacob series, you might recall. Boy, you're really an old-timer if you remember the life of Jacob. We had, that was before life of David, before life of Christ. All right. I'm not saying that uh, you're old or anything, but if you've been here that long, that's, uh, that was a while back. 
Genesis 28 and verse 18 um, Jacob has a dream. Jacob has been lying to his dad and he's running for his life. He's terrified of his brother. And so this scheme they concoct whereby um, uh, he's going to go obtain a wife uh, from their kinsmen in, in Paddan Aram. Basically, that's just his excuse to get out of town. And as he gets out of town, he gets to a camping spot and he sleeps there and he gets a dream. And uh, the dream is the faithfulness of God telling him, you're a loser, you're out of the will of God, but I'm going to take care of you. (laughs) All right? You're leaving the land of promise, but I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and I will be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will bring you back, knucklehead, and and, uh, I'm going to be faithful even though you're faithless. Okay? I'm paraphrasing. But that's the dream that he has. And he sees a vision of this ladder and the angels ascending and descending. And so he wakes up, and I find it interesting. He wakes up in verse 16 from his sleep, and he says, Surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, that is Beth and El. So uh, this is the gate of heaven. All right. So Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on its top. And so here's a pillar, and it's our vocabulary that we have for pillar in uh, Proverbs and everywhere. Uh, nothing really weird about the vocabulary. And so he takes the pillar, takes the stone, and he takes the stone. And what's the difference between a stone and a pillar? Well, is it standing up? <laughs> All right. And are there other stones around it, and are we building it up? You know, if you see a rock sitting there, you think, well, nature put it there. Uh, if you see the rock standing up and shaped and carved with inscriptions and whatever, you realize, okay, nature didn't put that there. A human did that. All right. So he makes this pillar and poured oil on his top. He's going to anoint it. That makes it uh, uh, sanctified with the oil. And so he called the name of that place Bethel. That's house of God. However, previously the name of the city had been called Luz. I forget what that means. All right. So Jacob made a vow saying, and so the, the thing about a pillar is a pillar is like a string tied around your finger, only it's heavier. It's something that reminds you of your expectations, your obligations, what God has done, the faithfulness of God. The pillar is a memorial. And the bigger the better because it keeps you from forgetting it. All right. So down to verse 22. And, and notice He's still kind of a loser at this point. Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and if I return to my father's house in safety. Well, what are these ifs about? Dummy, he said he was going to, right? Well, if then, then the Lord will be my God. All right? I will let God be my God if he does all these nice things for me. Okay? And, and before I get too down on Jacob, many of us do the same thing. Many people have the same attitude Jacob has. And we're, we're, we're okay serving God so long as he does stuff for us. You know, it's convenient. We like the nice stuff he gives us. And okay, yeah, you can be my God. But when he stops, or if I think he stops, or <laughs> I, I get forgetful and think, well, what have you done for me lately? How many people start looking around for another God or make themselves a God or don't have the time of day for the God who, to whom they owe everything? 
saying. So yeah, we don't want to get too down on Jacob here because we'd have to then preach about ourselves. Then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and of all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. And so anyway, the significance of Bethel and for the remainder of Israel's history in the Old Testament is kind of interesting as a place here and as a memorial stone. Uh, Something similar in chapter 31, a lot of uses in chapter 31, uh, between Jacob and Laban. And here's uh, Jacob making a treaty here with his Gentile. They are kinsmen, cousins if you will, but uh, nevertheless... Laban is not a part of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not a descendant of, uh, he has a common descent with Abraham's father, uh, makes him a cousin in terms of the tribes and the, and the ethnicity of, of Israel, but not Jewish, not a part of the Abrahamic covenant. I do think he was saved. I think his father was saved. And, uh, aspects there. But in Genesis 31, what am I looking for? Verse 13, verse 45, 51, and 52. A lot of these um, uses of pillars. When uh, he'd been out of town for 20 years, Elohim finally speaks to him and says, uh, okay, Jacob, I am the God of Bethel. And I love that, right? I am the God of Bethel. Remember me? (laughs) I am the God of that pillar you set up. And uh, in your faithless vow with the if, if God can do this kind of thing, I'm the God you vowed to. So uh, where you made a vow to me, arise, leave this land, return to the land of your birth. Because when you get back in the geographic will of God, when you're back in the land of promise, then I'm going to confirm my covenant with you and I'm going to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right now I'm just the God of Abraham and Isaac. And uh, aspects there. So that's verse 13. So he does. He packs up and there's a process. You know, you think it's rough getting one wife and kids in the car? Man, imagine four women, 12 boys and a girl. All the livestock, all the stuff. Okay. And uh, then there's conflict and Laban's chasing after him because... Boy, that that beautiful sex sex uh, attraction, whatever. I mean, Rachel was a, was a problem, okay? And uh, Rachel, he just he wanted her, he wanted her, he lusted after her, he thought she was the pretty one, and all that. She was an idol worshiper, all right. She was wicked. We don't have I don't have one positive thing to say about Rachel, not one, except she's in heaven today. I suppose we'll meet her someday. But um, so she steals the household idols from Laban. Then uh, smuggles them in her bags and sits on them and all these things. Causes trouble here. Leah was the, was the believer. Leah was the great one. Leah was the one that named her children with divine viewpoint. Leah is the, life, the line of Christ. Line of Christ isn't through Rachel. Leah, uh, line of Christ is through Leah. Leah is the, is the moon in the sun, moon, and stars dream that Joseph has. Rachel's not the moon. All right. So verses 45, 51, to 52, and uh, after all the back and forth here, and the covenant that they make. And uh, let us make a, verse 44 says, let us make a covenant, you and I, let it be a witness between you and me, 
So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. And Laban called it uh, Jigger Sahadutha. But Jacob called it Galid. Okay? I like Galid better. It's easier to pronounce. But either way, this is a witness. And it's carved on both sides. And there's the one name, there's the other name. And and this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, it was named Galid Heap. And uh, also Mizpah, for he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is uh, with us, see, God is witness between you and me. So they have this uh, heap, this agreement. Anyway, pillars are memorials. Uh, we get to chapter 35. We've got another one. Genesis 35, verse 14 and verse 20. And here, um comes to Bethel, and Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and then Jacob gets renamed Israel. And he's going to set up another pillar. And this is where it gets renamed Israel. And he pours a drink offering on it. Names the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. All right, so it's kind of interesting. Uh, Isaac is the boy that digs all the wells. Jacob is the boy that builds all the pillars. (laughs) And it's kind of an interesting study there when you study Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Idolatrous pillars in Judges 16. And there's so many of these. Man, I could have filled up screen with these verses. Because every time you have an Asherah, every time you have an Asherah pole, you've got, uh, you've got idolatry. Idolatrous pillars. Judges 16. By the way, why did uh, the pagans create the May? What was the Maypole about? Did you all celebrate May Day? on May 1st and get your little basket, flower basket together, go dance around the maypole. And uh, Doug, you did that? Yeah, you did. I know you did. You took a video, of course, because everybody does videos now. And Anyway. Don't get me going. All right. But you understand these springtime fertility rituals and all of the dancing around the... Uh, the, the 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 maypoles, yeah, dancing around the stuff. Well, all right, Judges sixteen. You know, this is what makes fertility cults so popular. People have physical fun. They think, wow, this is great. And you know, that God of the Bible, he's a meanie. He 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 tells you don't don't fornicate. All right. Anyway, so it so happened when they were in high spirits that they said, call for Samson that he may amuse us. So they call for Samson. from. Oh, yeah, here's some idolatrous pillars here in this temple. And uh, so they call for Samson from the prison, and he entertained them, and they made him stand between the pillars. And, of course, we know this story. He uh, prays to God. He gets his strength back one final time, and uh, he will kill more Philistines in his death than he does total uh, in all the other episodes throughout his uh, throughout his life. Interestingly enough, killing the enemy is a spiritual ministry in the plan of God. This was uh, his purpose in life, is killing the enemy. So there's the idolatrous pillars there. 
First uh, Kings fourteen twenty three. All these wicked kings, they would set up pillars. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. This is uh, verse 21 of 1 Kings 14. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Namah, the Ammonites. You know, I mean, there was certainly a pack of women to choose from that Solomon had, a thousand of them. And um, interestingly enough, it was an Ammonite woman. Here is the mother of Rehoboam in the line of Christ. Okay. And Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy more than all that their fathers had done which the sins, with the sins which they committed. For they also built for themselves high places and sacred pillars. These are the idolatrous pillars here. And Asherim on every high hill behind every and beneath every luxuriant tree. And there they also, uh, the male cult prostitutes in the land, they did according to all the abominations, and those are the, the dogs in the Hebrew, they did all the abominations according to the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. So idolatrous pillars there, and etc. I mean, repeatedly throughout the uh, divided kingdom, he had these idolatrous pillars. He also would have boastful pillars. Here's uh, Here's uh, Absalom setting this one up in 2 Samuel 18, 18. Let me back up to 2 Samuel 18, 18. Don't worry, I took this out of order. That's all right. Do I have the wrong verse? Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself a pillar which is in the king's valley for he said I have no son to preserve my name so he named the pillar after his own name and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Well I don't know. To me be the glory great things I have done I guess I don't know whatever whatever you want to do. Pillars. Now when it comes to temples when it comes to places of worship or places of, I think, when we're dealing with, with Proverbs 9, when, when wisdom says, I have hewn out my seven pillars, I have built a house, we're dealing with a residence of holiness. We're dealing with a residence, a sanctified residence, and so we shouldn't be surprised that temples would have pillars. In fact, um, not only Solomon's temple had pillars, but the early church had pillars. And the completed church will have pillars as well. And here's a tease. I've got to give you four minutes before the end of class. All right, let's look at these real quickly, and then you've got a week to think about it. Pillars were features of Solomon's temple. First Kings 7, not only were they there, but they were named. And what do we do with these names? What do they mean and why are they named that? And what are the features of the two pillars in front of Solomon's temple? 1 Kings 7. Now I've got to go fast. I've got to go quickly. 1 Kings 7. Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished all his house. <coughs> he built the house 
of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its width 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits, on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. Now, this is his palace, all right? It was paneled with cedar above the side chambers, which were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. Now, here we're talking about load-bearing pillars internal to the structure that support the residence. That's why I think that the pillars in, in, uh, in uh, Proverbs 7, Proverbs 9, are front pillars on the, the uh, entrance or on the uh, presentation facade, the portico, you will, of the structure itself. Um, artistic window frames in three rows, windows... Uh, uh, window was opposite window in three ranks, and all of these things. Anyway, that's the early verses there in 1 Kings 7. Verse 2, verse 3, and verse 6. He made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, its width 30 cubits, and a porch in front of them, and pillars and a threshold in front of them. And so it's the same vocabulary for internal pillars, weight load-bearing pillars, we, we would say, versus the ones in front. The pillars in front with the, the portico and the threshold is, uh, is something different. Anyway, and then we get down, get past his living arrangements where Pharaoh's daughter, his first wife, is able to take up residence. I don't think uh, Rehoboam's wife was, uh, or mother was uh, living in this palace. She had a different residence. But then uh, Hiram sends uh, the material for the temple. And now notice, uh, you get down to verse 15 and following, uh, he fashioned the two pillars, pillars of bronze. 18 cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of both. He made two capitals of molten bronze to set it on the tops of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits, the height of the other capital was five cubits. And they were nets of network and twisted threads of chain work for the capitals, which were on the top of the pillar, seven for the one capital and seven for the other. In any way, we get down to verse 21. I'm just going to run out of time. He set up the pillars at the porch of the nave, and he set up the right pillar and named it Jachin. All right. And he set up the left pillar and named it Boaz. Okay. Established in strength and uh, different, different terms there. And on top of the pillars was lily design. So the work of the pillars was finished. All right. So two named pillars in the front of the temple. The early church had pillars. We call them Peter, James, and John in Galatians 2 9. All right. Reputed to be pillars of the church. And that's significant because what are the eschatological pillars? You and me. Revelation 3.12. 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Flip fast. Flip fast. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. You and I get to become pillars eschatologically here in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. That's better than Jackin and Boaz. All right, The new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, you've got a week to chew on it and uh, consider what it means to become a pillar. And it's a lot better than the pillar of salt that Lot's wife became. All right, We get to become pillars in the temple of God the Father. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time 
Thank you, Father, for the blessings that we have to study to show ourselves approved. I thank you, Father, for wisdom's seven pillars. I thank you most of all for the house that Jesus has gone to prepare. The place he's gone to prepare is the place he's going to take us to when he comes again and receives us to himself. Oh, that it were today. Thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name I do pray. Amen.